Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today on the podcast, we are discussing the business of orthopedics and practice management pearls and pitfalls. This will be a special two-part feature commencing today and concluding next month. I'm honored to be joined in this discussion by one of the world's leading experts on practice management, Dr. Jack Burt. Dr. Burt practices in Woodbury, Minnesota, began the Minnesota Cartilage Restoration Center, is an adjunct clinical professor at the University of Minnesota, is a co-founder and the current CEO of MD Direct, and is a past president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America. Now, on a personal note, I'm especially excited to have Dr. Burt on the podcast today because I got to know him quite well during our Anna Traveling Fellowship in which he was my godfather. He is never short on opinions and advice when it comes to practice management, and I'm hoping to harness some of the pearls and pitfalls he shared with us during plane rides and dinner conversations and to share those words of wisdom with all of you, our listeners. So without further ado, Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to hear from you. Jack, you're a world-renowned thought leader on orthopedic practice management, and in fact, the title of your ANA presidential address in 2009 was, Can the Private Practice of Orthopedic Surgery Survive the 21st Century? I hope today we can outline some of your best tips for practicing orthopedic surgeons, both young and old, and pass on some of the lessons you've learned over your career. I also hope we can potentially answer the question you posed in your presidential address over a decade ago. But first, can you just provide some perspective for our listeners on your background and how you became so interested and invested in the topic of practice management and how you became such an informed consumer, if you will? Certainly, Chris. So I finished my residency at the Mayo Clinic in 1978 and then went into private practice immediately thereafter. I was in solo practice for a while and then started to pick up partners. And uh, in in the area of St. Paul, Minnesota, there were only about 18 practicing orthopedic surgeons at, uh, at that time. I became very interested in arthroscopy in 1982, and Lanny Johnson was my mentor. And I spent several visits to Lanny up in, in Michigan. And also, he had an annual, or I should say monthly, broadcast where he would send out those old big uh, three quarter inch tapes to you, and then eventually half inch tapes when VHS came out. And it would have all different techniques. Uh, that you could utilize to learn in the arthroscopy. So I, I visited him several times and then became very busy in knee arthroscopy in the early 80s. For those uh, you youngsters out there who don't know that name, Lanny's the one uh, that developed the mechanical shaver, which all of you use on a daily basis, literally over 40 years ago. So he was an incredibly creative thinker, uh, developed some of the upbiting tools used at that time. And even though he's in his mid 80s now, continues to do some research at Scripps uh, Clinic out in California in his spare time. An extremely talented individual. Bottom line is, when I began practice, I realized pretty quickly that uh, if we were going to do everything at the hospital, uh, it was an incredibly expensive proposition and it was very inefficient. So in 1990, uh, after practicing uh, for about a decade, I had the idea that perhaps we should consider putting an ambulatory surgery center in. And I visited Neil Small, who's one of the past presidents of the Arthroscopy Association, 
he was the first person in the country in Texas to do uh, in-office arthroscopy. And he would use Marcaine with epinephrine, inject the patient, have his uh, nurse give a little bursa, lie the patient down on an exam table in a, literally an exam room, nine by 12 feet. I went and visited him several times and uh, do arthroscopic meniscectomy. So we decided at that point that we would start practice management meetings. And in 1991, I believe, was our first year where we had the first orthopedic practice management courses in the United States. And we had over 300 orthopedic surgeons and practice administrators come to Texas literally every year. And the course, I think, lasted for five to seven years. I put in a one-room ambulatory surgery center at the end of my clinic space and began doing arthroscopic procedures in 1991 and expanded it so that we put the patient asleep, had an anesthesiologist, used local block anesthetics, and we began doing hand cases, uh, knee arthroscopic cases, and uh, became extremely successful uh, doing that. In fact, Lanny Johnson, who developed, believe it or not, a unique compartmental replacement when he owned his own implant company back then, and he came up, we did the first outpatient uni, I think ever done probably in the U.S., I think in 1992. And it was interesting because the insurance company would not, would not reimburse me for it because they had no code for total joints being done as outpatients. So I think I got a minisectomy uh, reimbursement of 600 or $800 for the facility fee back then. And Lanny was kind enough to uh, donate the uni compartment lane. And it w- went beautifully. Uh, she was in and out of there in about two hours. And uh, I was going to keep doing them that way, but obviously uh, we couldn't get reimbursed. Bottom line, at that point in time, then we also uh, had a 0.2 Tesla scanner for just knees, uh, which had uh, become part of a sales pitch for these small um, extremity scanners. And I think back then those were like $75,000 and you didn't have to have any RF shielding. So we put that in a separate room across from our office. And then we had a PT department that we uh, basically started. So we really had a good ancillary uh, program. And there was just five of us at that time, including uh, an outpatient ambulatory surgery center, physical therapy. We started DME. And then we had this little scanner uh, for knee scans and had them read by the local radiologist. It became very clear to me then that this was going to be the future. A lot of people came and looked at it. Uh, They weren't convinced. And then, as you know, ASCs now have blossomed into a a multi-billion dollar industry, as have uh, in-office MRIs and physical therapy. And of course, DME is is pretty much typical. And most private groups in the United States now, uh, I can tell you for a fact, uh, working with many of the big groups as a consultant, 40 to 50% of the revenue comes from their ancillary services. So it's a big deal. I've got some other thoughts on how that's going to change. But uh, that was really the initiation of practice uh, management courses. We continue to do in, instructional course lectures at the academy. This year, we were supposed to do our third uh, ICL on contracting uh, with Nick Skaglona, past president of Anna, Lou McIntyre, and then David Glazer, who is the attorney for the Mayo Clinic out of Minneapolis. And he's been working with me for the past 15 years in various teaching courses uh, for Orthopedics Today Hawaii for ACLs, for the AOS, and for the Arthroscopy Association of North America. So I think that's a good summary of what I've done. I've also been chair of the Practice Management Committee for the annual meeting for four years, and I just stepped down from that position this past year. Well, I think your credentials certainly speak for themselves. What a fantastic background and story. 
I'd like to diverge from the traditional podcast format just a little bit today in the hopes of generating a logically organized conversation about the vast topic of practice management, which I think can be a little bit overwhelming for both the newcomer and the veteran. I think if we flow through the conversation, much like a surgeon evolves through his career, we can make sure to hit all the highlights and have a little bit of something for everyone. So with that in mind, Jack, can you share with us your pearls and pitfalls for the surgeon looking for a job, either right out of residency or someone looking to transition practices? What should they be looking for? What what should they be doing or not doing and why? Yeah, great question. And, and you know, the sad sadness right now is that there's very few jobs available in a big city or very desirable locations due to the COVID environment with everybody's practices slowing down by 30 to 40 percent. I, I believe that's going to obviously change. It may take six to nine months from now to have that happen. But I can tell you that uh, having the opportunity from se- several of my friends nationally who run fellowship programs. Uh, I offered to people like Buddy Savoie and Nick Scaglione and others who run programs that I would be happy to look over any contracts that their fellows may have. So I I have sort of this litany of, of, (laughs) or collection, I should say, of of 22 different contracts I've looked at in the last three to four years. And uh, I signed a contract back in the mid-90s when we merged three groups together to become a, a a much larger group and kind of take over the St. Paul area, suburban area, which was two pages long. Now those same contracts are 20 pages long. And I just looked at one, oh gosh, about three weeks ago that was 30 pages, single spaced, and had comments in it like, you as a treating doctor will not solicit any type of retirement funds from your patient or any estate planning funds from your patient. And, And so what happens is these attorneys try to think of any possible complication that could occur with a relationship and and try to make sure and and obligate that within the contract for the person signing it. It's really tragic. And so these things have become just literally a a war and peace type document that is so much of it is absolutely ludicrous. But a couple points I want to make about that. When you're looking for a job, you have to think of several things. And, and again, one of them is the contract. And be very, very careful that when you review a contract that you understand it. Don't take it to your divorce attorney or family attorney. You want to take it to somebody who's really a good contract attorney if there are parts of it that you don't understand. Now, you should be able to understand 99% of what's in there. So when I read them, and I have been reading them for years, but uh, and I actually helped formulate several of them for my old group, it, it should be simplistic language. It shouldn't be a lot of, you shouldn't have a lot of difficulty understanding it, but make sure there's two things that you have to look at that are absolutely critical. One of them is termination with cause and one, uh, one of them is termination without cause. I've known many people who've been terminated without cause for no good reason, except that the younger guys want them out. And so if you have a very loose termination without cause, part of your contract, you can literally get booted out of your group with a majority uh, vote. I've worked with some groups, so we make it unanimous or uh, all you have to have 98% uh, agreement or 75% agreement, whatever that number of people in the group. But if there's somebody they just don't like, uh, if it's somebody that the younger kids want to get out because the older guy has a, a bigger practice, that's how I've seen people get terminated. Um, Secondly, there's 90-day termination clauses in the vast majority of contracts. 
which means that even though you may think you have a long-term contract, either side can terminate the contract within 90 days. I find that just a horrific clause to have within the contract because basically all it means is you've signed a 90-day contract. So when you look at these contracts, make sure they're for much longer time frame, that the termination without cause is very, very uh, appropriately written. So you just can't be booted out if somebody doesn't like you or if you've got this huge practice and other people want it. It's a major issue. The termination with cause, make sure it's something that's happening that is, is really a causative effect that would get you booted out of the group. For example, uh, some kind of a, and I've seen this happen, you know, having a sexual affair with uh, one of the um, employees, overuse of narcotics and getting stipulated by the state board. That kind of stuff is considered cause, but the stuff that's not cause is what you really, really got to be careful of. So that's one of the very important pearls, if you will, that you've got to consider. When you're looking at a practice as you probably are all well aware, and I have access to the Academy's information regarding the number of people who are looking at employment opportunities, whether that's by hospital, by healthcare system, or privately, there's no question that the number of orthopedic surgeons that are joining groups that are employed by hospitals or healthcare systems is rising. And the reason is very simple. The healthcare systems are just taking over groups. Uh, Lou McIntyre, our immediate, immediate past president uh, from two years ago, just got employed by a company that basically is a, an equity group that is buying out different private practice groups, and they've become very successful at it. The buyouts are something you've got to ask when you're in an interview. Is that about to happen? Is, is it going to happen near time, anytime in the future? Has there been an offer? Because as soon as there's a buyout of a group, I can tell you for a fact, the salaries for the remainder of the partners that are in the group are going to drop by roughly 30%. And the reason is that if you're paying $50 million to buy out a a group so everybody gets a big paycheck, and that's great for the older guys, and I say older 50 to 55-year-olds who are never going to make that amount of money prior to quitting practice, it's not very good for the younger guys because even though it's a big check, they're probably going to work through that amount by the time they're in their late 40s or early 50s, and then they're going to take that 30% haircut. And the reason for that is is that the equity group that's buying out the orthopedic group has to make sure they get their money back. And where do they get it? They get it from your workflow, and they get it by reducing salaries of everyone so that they can have a positive cash flow to pay off their original investment. So that's a very important thing to ask. Uh, And thirdly, as we've talked a little bit about contracting, Make sure that you have a reasonable employment contract with a hospital system. Remember, you're going to be paid based upon productivity, based upon hitting target RVU numbers, relative value unit numbers, which are work RVUs. And what that means is it's the amount of work that you're doing in the clinic and the amount of work you're doing in surgery. If they have a 7,500 RVU threshold, say, for example, for you to make a half a million dollars and you don't meet it, They can literally claw back part of your salary or tell you you've got to make up that amount next year. So maybe it's 7,000 RVUs. Now, that's a a, a catch-22 because, for example, if there's other competitive groups in the area that are taking away the market share that you should be getting as an employed physician, it can be a huge problem for you to try to garner new referrals. So the hospital has to be helping you 
by, and they can do this, but they can be enforce their own family docs to see you first before they go to see a private doc. Um, that can be, that should be part of their contract. It's totally legal. Dave Glazer, for the attorney for the Mayo Clinic, has made that point several times at our meetings. And so you want to make sure and explore before you sign the contract with a hospital system that there is a strong referral source for you. Otherwise, you're going to sit in your office twiddling your thumbs, not doing cases, and not be able to hit those thresholds. You know, the other thing I got to tell you, I've had multiple arguments with administrators when I've worked for groups to represent them in their negotiations. And they use something called the MGMA. And what that is, is a group association of all the medical groups around the country, Medical Group Management Association. And they come out with statistics as to average salaries. For, so, for example, the average salary for an orthopedic surgeon is four hundred to $450,000 in year one. Now, that's the 50th percentile. So I've sat in multiple uh, sessions with administrators and the doctors, and they say, well, we're going to put you at the 50th percentile. And so I look at them straight in the eye. This is the administrator. and say, wait a minute. Does that mean they're the best of the worst, or are they the worst of the best? I mean, I think these guys are great doctors. Why shouldn't they be in the 75th percentile? Well, because we don't do it that way. We, we like the 50th percentile. Well, there's no logic to it. They're just trying to save money. So you can always ask the question, well, how much did I make for the hospital this last year? They'll never tell you. And so one of the tricks I tell people to do is collect the EOBs from your patients. They don't mind bringing them in. And for those of you who don't have never had surgery, and I've had multiple orthopedic <laughs> procedures, and I collect mine, it's the explanation of benefits. And what that means is, for example, I just had a two-level laminectomy got billed out at $27,000. I had it done as an outpatient, and the uh, facility fee and the surgeon's fee was $6,000. That's what they got reimbursed. So the bottom line is, what you want to know then is what did that hospital get reimbursed? And believe me, it's a hell of a lot more when it's uh, done at a hospital, even if, even if they do an HOPD rate and the ASC rate, the minimum of 40% less. So you want to collect those EOBs so that when you go in, you know how much they receive. For example, if you did a total joint, the hospital may have received uh, $22,000. They may have received, if it's Medicare, only $13,500 or, or $14,500. But the bottom line is, let's say you've done 100 of those. So you've uh, done um, you know, $1.4, $1.5 million. You've done another two to $3 million. Um, and then they say, well, we're only going to pay $400,000 again this year. You go, wait a second. I just collect all these EOBs, and even though I don't have all the different payer analyses for all of them, I'm going to try to collect them from the Blues, United Healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. I know this is roughly what you received. How can you justify only paying me that much, and and you've received this much? So there's some work out of a practice management group in Indiana, Mike McCaslin, who collects this data, and uh, he's occasionally consulted by the AOS. And he will tell you that the average orthopedist produces 2.5 to 3.1 million for the hospital on, on an annualized basis. And I know guys in the, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area that produce 10 to 12 million that do four to 500 joints a year. And they get paid a seven-figure salary because they've made the argument, look it, you know, we've produced this much for you. But they collect that data. They, keep, they, they have it in their hand when they go in and talk to the administrators. So there's no line and there's no lack of transparency, right? Because they then can, can calculate based roughly 
and the work that they've done, how much the hospitals received. So those are some of the critical things. And believe me, all this holds true for private groups as well. They can play the same games as a hospital system. They may want you to wait three to five years before you become partner. They may want all your ancillary revenue. And one of the tricks that I tell young people coming out, if they're joining a private group and the, and the group has an ASC, has physical therapy, has DME, and has an MRI, just, and they say, well, we want you to pay in a million to own a share of this because it's producing five, $10 million, 10 millions of dollars every year. Just say, I'll tell you what, you keep all my ancillary revenue, pay me a salary until I hit my threat, until I become partner in three years. You keep all that. Let's keep track of it, see how much it is. If there's anything left over, I'll pay it. And that's the fairest way to do it. And that's what we did in our group for over 20 years. And then when you leave, you don't get a big payout. You, know, you leave, you just walk away, you get your accounts receivable. So I call that easy in, easy out. And that should be your goal because the last thing you want to do is get straddled with, you know, one or $2 million worth of debt for the buy-in. If it's easier just to do it this way, then that's the way I do it. So those are some talking points for anybody listening to this when you're looking for a job. And even if you're doing a transition, again, be careful of your contractual agreements because it's the only time you're going to get to negotiate. Before you put pen to paper, remember, there's no turning back. Once you sign that contract, you're screwed. And I can tell you for a fact that some guys who've joined groups and employed situations and they didn't get to achieve their appropriate RVU number, say 7,500 RVUs, they actually got clawed back some of their salary or was added on for the next year. So then they had to hit 10,000 RVUs. So I, I hope that's helpful, Chris. Absolutely. Excellent tips, certainly high yield for those currently in training or looking to move practices or military surgeons looking to transition out. Next, can you share with us your thoughts on pearls and pitfalls for the first, say, five years of your career as a practicing orthopedic surgeon? Where can folks succeed or really go wrong? You know, basically, how do we get it right, right out of the gate? Yeah, it's a great question, too. Uh, you know, be careful of reaching for the RVUs because that's the tenancy. You know, I, I say to some people, when you're dealing with insurance companies, for example, it's not the money, it's the money. You got to be a little bit careful of doing that in private practice. You, you got to stay honest, stay conservative. Your reputation, even though it's harder to, to be this way, if you're a conservative practicing physician, the referral docs will love you for it. Your patients will love you for it and they'll trust you. One of the things that I have done over the years, and I, I've been fairly active in publishing and, and writing book chapters, but I've used so many articles from so many good doctors, and I'll quote them for the patient. I actually used to give out lists, and I'll give out uh, a, a PDF of an article, uh, for example, that I'll keep on my computer and just have my secretary print it off. Because if I'm making the argument that you should try, for example, visco supplementation, I'll get an article that, gosh, Chris, I think you helped me uh, write this on the conservative treatment of OA of the knee and just hand it to him. Or if there's some other author that has a good article that I respect, I'll just hand it to him and say, hey, look, it, this is what I think you could do. I know you've had other opinions that say you should have your total knee right now, but I honestly don't think you need it yet. I think you can have a conservative care approach. I think we can try some injectables like uh, 
visco supplementation if it's allowed, which in 35 states is a, it's a tough deal, or PRP, which is cash-based, but it's not terribly expensive. I personally am not a fan of, of stem cells because I don't think they work that much better than what we have, at least not in this country. They do in uh, South America and Colombia, where I've had the chance to visit a stem cell clinic where they can get 20 million cells uh, from, from an aspirate, and we get 500,000. So at the end of the day, if you're super honest with your patients, you'll be shocked at how good your scores will be on all the various internet search engines, and you'll, you'll be amazed at how faithful your patients will be. When they won't be faithful is, is if you want to dive into surgery immediately for something that doesn't necessarily require it immediately, and they get other opinions. And then the word gets around pretty dang quickly that you're a cutter. Uh, I got to be honest with you. And I've seen that happen to guys, and it, it really slows down the progression of the practice. The other thing I always tell new employees that are just coming out of their uh, fellowship or residency is it kind of takes about five years to hit your critical mass. Everybody's always frustrated when they see the older guys with these massive clinics and, you know, big full surgical schedules, and they've got one or two or three cases a week max. And they're going, God, how am I, when am I going to get there? And I've said that to just a number of people, and they always say, you're, you know, you're right. It took five years for me to get busy. So expect it, and, and it will happen. But just try to be honest, extremely empathetic with your patients, and stay conservative and uh, very transparent. And don't be afraid to share the literature. Try to be as evidence-based as you can. Again, we should all be doing that with everything that we do in, in our profession. Great advice from someone who certainly has had a long and successful career. This has been part one of our two-part series on practice management in orthopedics with Dr. Jack Burt. We have focused on the early career surgeon today and will continue our discussion next month with a focus on the more established surgeon, taking a look at ancillary and passive income streams, non-clinical opportunities, and transitioning out of practice. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.